Um, If you can turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are first who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is the word of God. Hi, New Hope. It's good to see you all. Happy first day of spring, by the way. Did you know today is the first day of spring? I see a lot of you with coats on, nevertheless. It's a frigid spring day, but it's nevertheless spring. And it's also Palm Sunday, so happy Palm Sunday to all of you as well. Um, I had the opportunity this morning to worship with a church called Restore in North Haledon, New Jersey, not far from where my wife and I live for now although we are hoping to move very soon. Um, But I had the chance to worship with them, and I had the opportunity, the privilege, really, to to preach um, the gospel to them, a Palm Sunday message about Jesus Christ, the King, the King we've been singing of, who's also the Lamb who lays down his life for his people in order to rescue us and bring us into uh, his kingdom. Restore Church is a church that I've gotten to know through Um, our previous affiliation in something called the Acts 29 Network. It's a network of church-planting churches that my previous church, Maranatha Grace, was a part of, and I got to know the pastor and the people of that church through that network. Um, And I told them, I asked them this morning to pray for New Hope, and they said they will pray for New Hope. I also told them that we would pray for Restore. So let's do that and pray for Restore before we jump into God's Word. Lord, we thank you for the tremendous privilege it is for us to gather in your presence as your people to hear from you and to praise you and thank you and to bless you, to make much of you, to speak well of you through our songs and through our prayers and and even in our fellowship together. But we thank you also that we get to do this not only as an individual church, as one community, We are a part of a much larger community, churches, local bodies that have been engaging and engaging even now in the same kind of worship. And earlier today and throughout the rest of this day, churches all over not only this country but the world who are doing the very same thing that we're doing, praising you, Jesus, as King, thanking you, Jesus, for what you've done for us. Lord, we want to lift up this other local church, Restore, We want to thank you for planting that church. We want to thank you for growing it, for nurturing it, for caring for it. We ask that you would be at work powerfully by your spirit in that local community of of believers to bring joy, to bring holiness, to bring an all-out commitment to your mission. And pray that we do that for your glory. We thank you for the partnership that we have with with other churches. We thank you that we're not an island unto ourselves. We thank you, Lord, that you are at work in each one of your churches, 
that you are the head over each one of them specifically and you care for them specifically. So you know the needs of Restore just like you know, you know the needs of New Hope. We ask that you would powerfully and in clear, evident ways address those needs, meet those needs, feed your sheep, Lord, protect your sheep, nurture them, and use them to accomplish your perfect will. We pray all of that in Jesus' name. Amen. We have been talking about identity lately, um, and that's because we're, we've just started a series in the book of Ephesians, and at the beginning of that letter to the Ephesian church, there's a lot to be said in there about identity, about who God is and about who we are. So that's why we've been talking about identity. We've also been talking about identity because I think it's, a, it's an issue that's present on some of our minds. It's something that we often struggle with, whether we're aware of it or not. Many of us find ourselves asking the question, we're trying to figure out, who am I? Maybe you can remember seasons in your life where you were really wrestling with that. Maybe it was when you were a kid. Maybe you are a kid now. Maybe you're in middle school. You're in high school. And it's something you wrestle with. Who am I? Am I just the sum of the things that I'm interested in? Am I the sport I play? Am I my grades? Am I just my family? Is that where I get my identity? Am I the people that I hang out with? Is that how I can be identified? And later on in life, as we get older, we struggle in the same way, but we just, we might find our identity in other places. Maybe it's not in the friends we hang out with and the sports we play and the clothes we wear, but maybe it's in other places. Maybe we start to look for identity in the work that we do or in our resume or in our income or in our spouse or in our zip code. All of those places we might struggle to say, is that who I am? Am I, am I just the lump sum of those things, the things I've amassed in life or the decisions I've made. God comes to us in, Hebrew, in the book of Ephesians and he says to you, I know who you are. I know the true you. And not only that, I can give you a new you. I know the true you and I can give you a new you. So today what I want to do is focus on another aspect of what God says about us. What God says about everyone who believes in Jesus Christ. He says this, to you if you are a believer in Jesus. He says, you are now an adopted child and an heir. You are his children who have been promised an inheritance, an inheritance that you can't begin to imagine the beauty and the worth and the glory of. And what I think Paul does in the passage we're going to look at today is he tells us three things that had to happen in order for you to get this identity Three things, at least, and there are other things, but these are the three he talks about here. Three things that had to happen in order for you to get that identity as an adopted child, an heir of God. Three things. One, God predestined. Two, you believed. And three, God sealed. God predestined, you believed, God sealed. So let's look at that first one, God predestined. Let's, let's jump back. I know we, we started reading, or Kathy read to us from verse 11 of first of I already almost said Hebrews before now I almost said first Corinthians I don't know why we are in Ephesians today okay so no matter what I say from here on out no matter what I say you just go back to Ephesians okay let's go to Ephesians 1 and let's jump back to verse 5 
because it connects directly with what we're going to look at in 11 to 14. And, and by the way, I said this last time, but everything here from all the way from verse 3 all the way down to where we're ending today, verse 14, it's just one long sentence anyway, one long Greek sentence. Here's what Paul says in verse 5. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. God the Father planned, he determined to make you his child. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, and this is absolutely true of you, he determined, he planned to make you a child, and he did this before the foundations of the world. The the word that Paul uses is predestined. You see, God didn't just look ahead and see that one day you might want to be his child and say, okay, you want to be my child? I'll predestine to make you my child. No, God determined to make you his. Notice these vital words in verse 5. It says, according to the purpose of his will. You see that? His will. That's what's really highlighted here. Not your will or my will. His will. God planned specifically, and, and he carried out his plan specifically in your life. He also didn't just look into the future and say, hmm, I think, I think Che would make a good son. Q, he looks like a pretty good, he, I think he's going to be a pretty good son. Kaylee, I think she'll be a good daughter. Let's, let's bring them into the family. Let's make them mine. On the contrary, what, what God does is he looks at who we are, he sees who we are, and he picks us anyway despite who we are, not because of who we are. I, I learned a couple of years ago about this practice. In, um, it's a Japanese practice, and maybe you've heard about this. Owners of large, for large companies in Japan will often adopt children, but they won't do it for the same reasons that you or I might adopt a child. You see, traditionally... Again, I don't know if this is common across the board, but it's it's traditional. Companies have been handed down through the family line. So if I own a money-making enterprise, and I look at my kids and I see that one day my oldest son is going to inherit this company, but I notice that he's not much of a businessman. In fact, he's kind of a disappointment. And I'm not sure I can entrust this company to him. What I can do if I'm the owner of that company is find someone, an employee, who's really just impressed me. An employee who really seems to know what this business is about. He's got a bright future. He's the kind of son I wish I had. Well, I'll adopt him. Make him my son. And then I'll sign over the papers to him. And when I pass away, the company is his. It's still being handed down the family line but it's been entrusted to someone that I deemed worthy. Someone impressive. Now, of course, that young man better live up to those expectations, but I deemed him worthy. This is not at all the way that God adopts. You see, on the contrary, like I said, he sees us for who we are, and he plans to make us his anyway. Liabilities and all, deficiencies and all, God had all the information about you and more. And he wasn't really impressed. 
In fact, he knows about our problems. He knows about the problem with discontentment or that that feeling of entitlement or rebelliousness or disobedience. He knows all of those problems and sins that you and I struggle with, but he did not allow that to stop him from saying, I will plan and I will determine to make you mine. And even, and even as we have lived and his children and we've continued to fail at times and consistently let him down and consistently fail to live up to the calling of being a child of God, he doesn't want to take us back to get store credit. He's not looking to return us. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Amazing words. It it goes back to that same idea that we've been talking about in previous weeks. This idea of union with Christ. Connection with Jesus. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus. How does God make you and me his child? It's by connecting us with his son. Jesus Christ. We are welcomed into Jesus' relationship with the Father. We are welcomed into his sonship. And, and, and think about this. How does God, the Father, feel about his son, Jesus Christ? How does God, the Father, feel about his son, Jesus Christ? He has eternally been pleased with his son. He loves his son. His son, Jesus, is the one that the God, God the Father looks at and says, He's my beloved. In him I am well pleased. And so when you and I are connected to that son by faith, the creator of the universe looks at us and he says the same thing about us. He says, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. He doesn't look at us and he says, yeah, that's my kid. I, what am I going to do? I put up with him. I'm hoping he <laughs> gets himself together. well-pleased. Think about the magnitude of the Father, the creator of all things, saying about you, I'm well-pleased. How often do you feel well-pleased with yourself? How often do you feel well-pleased with the people in your life? Do you believe that God the Father is, in fact, well-pleased with you in Christ? So many of us, we have a sneaking suspicion that God He might accept us, but he's not too happy about it. And if he had to do over again, he might make a different choice. He's probably disappointed and frustrated with us. It's the way we think. If you are in Christ, then you are loved as a son. You are the beloved, just as Jesus Christ is the beloved. So so think about that. How does it feel for you? How How does the idea of God as a father sound to you? Is it just a theory? A concept that we bounce around in the the church sometimes? I think for some of us, the obstacle in understanding God to be our father is that we have really bad relationships with our fathers, earthly fathers, human fathers. Some of us, some of you have fathers that don't look very much like God. And so when I say to you, God is your father, you say, oh, I already have one father. And um, if you knew him, I don't know that you would like him very much. So now you're telling me I've got another person in my life like him? 
hard for us. I think God understands this. In fact, in Matthew 7, Jesus says these words to fallen sinful fathers like us. Those of you who are dads in here, listen to what Jesus says. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? You see, we're prone to compare God to our human fathers. God welcomes the comparison. He says, look, even the best of you are evil fathers. You fall short all the time. But if you, even you, are willing to give your kids good gifts when they ask, how much more, how much more will I, the perfect father, give you what you need, care for you, provide for you, and love you? You see, God says no matter what kind of upbringing you had, no matter if your father was absent or abusive or just awful, God says I, what I've got in store for you is so much better than all of that. If you are in Christ, then you are loved by a perfect dad, present, patient, passionately for you. And that doesn't mean that God doesn't care about our sins. He doesn't care about how you live. That's not the case at all. What kind, what kind of father really doesn't care about the way his kids live? Not much of a father. But God's desire for you as his son is to do you good. Even when he disciplines you, and he, and he does discipline you, if you are his child, Hebrews 12 says, you should expect to be disciplined. Why? Because it's his loving, nurturing correction. It's his way to rescue you. It's his way to spare you pain further pain because he knows that for us, for you and me, for us to sin, for us to reject what God calls us to and to embrace things that God calls us to leave alone, when we live according to the, what we think is right and not the way God calls us, those kind, what we're all doing is we're living as if we don't belong to him. Sin is an, a, it's a failure to realize or an unwillingness to be, say, I belong to him. Now, I believe that as we think about sonship and what it means to be adopted into God's family, that's meant to drive us to loving obedience. Great gratitude and obedience to the God who says, I love you and you're mine. And by the way, this, this passage here, you notice Paul says uh, he has predestined us for adoption as sons. As sons. Um, he doesn't say sons and daughters, and it's kind of, people argue about why that is. Some might say, well, when the Greek said, son, when in Greek, when we say sons, it kind of includes, it's gender inclusive. It means sons and daughters. That's quite possible. What I think Paul is doing here is something a little different, though. He's, he's, he's saying sons because he means sons. And the reason he's saying sons is because within traditional cultures like his, who gets the inheritance in the family? Who has the position, for, for better or worse, I'm not saying it's right, I'm just saying that in traditional cultures, who has the position of prominence, prominence and favor and importance in the family? It's the son. So Paul is communicating to his first century audience in a language they would understand. He's saying, no, no, whether you're a man, woman, child, you have the position of prominence. You are the son of God. You, as we're going to see in a moment, you will receive the inheritance. 
That's what he tells us. Look in verse 11 of Ephesians 1. It says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. You see how it starts there? In him, again, in Jesus. In Jesus you've become sons, and also in him you get an inheritance as sons. And there goes that word again, predestined. Speaks of God planning, determining, purposing in his mind. And again, it's not, it's not God looking ahead and, and predicting who's going to love me, who's worthy of the inheritance, who's going to live in such a way that I can entrust them with this inheritance, and then saying, okay, I'll give it to you. No, it's not what he's doing at all. He works all things according to the counsel of his will, Paul says. You see that? He works it all out. He plans it out, and all his plans come to fruition. You and I plan things, and lots of the time our plans fall through, don't they? Maybe this past week, you can think about things that you intended to do and you just weren't able to. Either you forgot, or you didn't have the time, or you tried and you failed. God plans, and then he makes it happen. For him, the predestining is as good as done. It's going to happen. So not only does he plan for us to be his children, but he plans for us to receive an inheritance. I don't, I don't come from a family that, that has um, historically had a lot of money. So if someone in my family were to say, hey, listen, I heard you're in for an inheritance, I'd be like, oh, okay. I mean, I, I, don't, I wouldn't expect it to be much. I know the people in my family, you know. Great, an inheritance. But what kind of inheritance is God promising? What kind of inheritance is he promising to his sons? You know, Paul doesn't specify, he doesn't list out exactly what that inheritance entails. Not here, at least. But there are hints throughout the scriptures. There's these little windows throughout the Bible into what it is that we can expect to receive as sons of God. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, one of the things that God would consistently say to his people is, you will inherit a land. In that culture, that meant everything. Land was everything. A place to live. A place to live in peace, safe from enemies. To own your own property and be able to raise families and live there. And then we transition to the New Testament, that you will inherit a land. It seems to change a little bit. It takes on a more of a, a spiritual aspect. God says, you will inherit the kingdom of God. He uses language like that for his people. He says in the Sermon on the Mount, his people will inherit the earth. The earth. Look at it from this perspective. I don't know if you remember, a few weeks back, um, preached from Colossians chapter 1, and we were looking at Jesus and who Jesus is, and one of the things we saw about him there is that all things were created through him and for him. Remember this? Jesus, everything was made through him and it was made for him. He owns everything. Jesus does. Hebrews 1 says the same thing about Jesus. It says, he's been appointed the heir of all things. Jesus owns it all. He has inherited it all. So what does inheritance look like for you and me if we are connected to Jesus Christ? All things. All things. All things are his, so all things 
are ours if we are in him. And the Bible doesn't hedge on this. It speaks in these huge terms about it. Look, God is committed to restoring and recreating this entire world, this fallen place that we live. He calls it the new heavens and the new earth, and he will make the beauty of that new heavens and new earth, make everything that we see around us today pale in comparison. Imagine, the, you see the beauty of this world around you. Imagine the, the, imagine the creativity of God, unencumbered by sin, the curse. The Bible says that the earth itself, whatever this means, groans for that to happen. Creation itself is eager to be renewed. God says that world, that newly created world, that belongs to Jesus, it's yours. It's yours to enjoy, to inhabit, and to enjoy with the Father, with the Son, with the Spirit, with the church. It's mine, and I will share it with you, God says, and you will enjoy it in my presence. I heard someone say not too long ago, this world is not your home but it will be. When it is recreated to be what it was always meant to be, we will finally be home. And we won't be tenants renting a little spot. This will be ours. And even as I say those words, I realize that I can't even fathom the depth of what they really mean. I doubt you can either. But I think we're meant to be awed by the, awed by the grandness of it. Heaven, life with God in eternity is not, you know, whatever cartoons we saw notwithstanding, life in heaven doesn't look like us sitting cross-legged on clouds, playing harps. It looks like us living life in perfect communion with one another and with God, enjoying the creation and the entire new recreated world that he gives to us as an inheritance. So this means for, for those of us who are struggling, if you're struggling and you're in pain and you're suffering loss right now, then this is a message of hope because the temporary pain and the lack and the loss that you're experiencing now is not worthy to be compared to the inheritance that God has prepared for you and is guarding and is ready to give you. And if you're comfortable and you lack nothing, or you feel like you lack nothing, then, then this, this is a message that's meant to change perspective. It's meant to, to wake us up to the fact that the things that we find comfort and maybe even identity in here, temporary, moths eat it up and rust eats it away. And people come and they steal it and it disappears. But the inheritance that God has promised us is secure. And it's yours in fact, it's so definitely yours that Paul talks about in the past tense. He says, we've obtained it. We've obtained it. It's yours. He knows that we have yet to really see what the fullness of what that inheritance will look like. It's still ahead, but he said, it's so sure. You've obtained it already. 
What is that inheritance? The Bible says the kingdom of God. That's what you'll inherit. The earth, he says, you'll inherit. One, one pastor says it this way, John MacArthur. He says, he says are you ready for this? Quote, here's, the, here's the, the inheritance. It's every promise that God ever made, period. He says, are you ready for that? Now, if you want me to delineate those promises, we're going to be here for a while, he says. It's every promise that God has ever made. You are, if you are in Christ, then you, God has predestined you. He planned, he predestined to adopt you, to give you this inheritance, even if you haven't received it fully yet. But there's another side to all this. We need to move ahead a little quickly here. There's another side to this. Not only did God predestine, you believed. You believed. Look at verses 12 and 13. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. In him, again, he says, hope in Christ. In him also, when you heard the truth, you believed in him, he says. So, so, so notice this. Hearing, believing, Hoping. They all go together right here. Paul is saying, look, you, yes, God predestined you. He chose you. But from your side, from your angle, what does this look like? It looks like this. Someone shared the gospel with you. Many many people, maybe, spoke to you about who Jesus Christ is. Talked to you about the fact that God the Father has sent his son, had rejected his son in order for us to become his children. That message was, was Shared maybe in church services like this one, through preachers, or through the word as it was being read, or maybe it was shared through songs that were, people were singing and that you were singing. Maybe it was shared in your own home as you were a little kid and your parents would sit with you and teach you this gospel. Maybe it happened as friends loved you enough to be able to share this gospel with you, even though you really weren't interested in hearing it. But when one way or another, you heard it, you believed it, And he said, I'm going to place all my hope there. We come to believe that gospel in different ways if we're God's children, don't we? I love hearing people's testimonies. One of the things I really love about it is that there's certain commonalities. Hearing, believing, and hoping are consistent throughout everyone's testimony of how they came to Christ. But there are lots of other differences, too. We're wired different ways and we respond to different aspects of truth, don't we? Certain things that helped others come to Christ for us, they just like bounced off us. They didn't make sense to us. I was just, actually, I was talking to Brother Alex recently and he was talking about how um, early on in his life as God was working in him to, 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 to bring him to a place to believe the gospel, he said that he started asking all kinds of questions about science Nerdy questions. No, they weren't nerdy questions. They're, they're questions about science. You know, like, he, he needed to have these questions answered in order for him to say, I'll trust in what the Bible says. I'll trust in what this message. But I've got lots of questions. Me? I'm much more of a, I'm not like an engineer mind. I'm not a math mind. I'm, I'm more intuitive in the way that I approach things. So what really got me about the gospel was the sheer beauty of it. And I saw these themes in the gospel that kind of resonated with things that I'd seen in my own life. And 
My needs seemed to be addressed so beautifully in the gospel. It sounded right to me. I had questions too. Those questions had to get answered. But for me, those questions, getting those questions answered came further down the line. Intuitive guys, math guys, science-minded people, we all come to Christ in slightly different ways, but in the end, there's hearing, there's believing, and there's a hoping in Christ. Now, one of the things this means is that when we come into the family of God, it's this beautiful, multicolored family. You've got, you know, you've got the, the engineer types, and you've got the artist types. You've got the mathematicians and, and the poets, and they're all kind of in the same family. And one thing holds us together. From God's perspective, it's this. He predestined in love. He predestined to adopt you as sons. And in Christ, you have obtained this inheritance. He predestines, we believe. And there's this kind of, I've struggled over the years, and maybe you have too with these two sides. God predestines, I believe. How do those things come together? How how does God's sovereign purpose to work out everything according to the counsel of his will, how does that intersect with my responsibility and freedom to believe or not believe stretches us to, to see how these two things work together. It's hard. One old preacher, C.H. Spurgeon, he was asked, how do you reconcile God's sovereignty and man's responsibility? And he said, I don't need to reconcile them. They're not enemies, he said. They're not enemies. I don't need to reconcile them. I just need to try to understand how they exist together. They already exist together. Figuring that out is not easy. We worship a God who works out all things according to his purposes. Is that mysterious? No doubt. I don't think any of us can explain it. I don't think any of us can fully understand it. We can't. But in a sense, why, shouldn't we expect that? Shouldn't we expect that God's eternal plan, the wisdom of a God who created and sustains the entire universe, should it surprise us that that is beyond our ability to fully fathom? Shouldn't we expect that it would be a little confusing to us? That we can't fully make sense of it? I'm not surprised by that. I mean, it's as if you know, God can come to us and say, You could barely follow the plot of that Mission Impossible movie you watched the other night, but you expect to just read a couple of verses and and totally understand God's purposes from eternity. All of his wise will. No, it's not that easy. Maybe, maybe one day we'll start to make more sense of it. But God says it's meant to stretch us. It's too much for us in a sense. And yet he says, hold this tension. Hold this tension. In the scriptures, again and again, we read about two sides of this coin. Two sides of this. God chooses. He predestines. We hear, we believe, and we place our hope in him. He says, don't give up either one of those. The Apostle Paul doesn't give up either one of those. He just talks about them in different contexts. So usually when he's talking about about God's predestining of people, predestinating of people. What's the context in which he's usually talking about that? He's talking to Christians. He's talking to people in Christ. He's encouraging you. He's saying, listen, God has chosen you. 
Don't worry. He's saying God's grip on you extends into eternity. Draw comfort and security from that. And then when Paul comes and he's speaking to people who don't believe the gospel, who don't know Christ, what does he say? Believe. Turn away from everything that you're putting your hope in. Repent of those sins. Put your trust in Christ. He holds on to both of them, and I think we need to as well. And the question for us is not to determine, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you haven't embraced the gospel, then the question for you is not, hmm, has God predestined me? Am I chosen? God never once tells us to ask that question. Instead, he says, believe. Listen to the gospel. Listen to the beauty of it. Ask questions about it. Find those questions answered in God's word and believe and place your hope in him. Last thing God does here is he seals. He seals. God predestines. We believe. He seals. Verse 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. All throughout the scriptures, God has given this great promise. Well, it shows up beautifully in places like Ezekiel 36. This great promise of the gospel. The great promise of the gospel is not just that you and I can be forgiven of our sins. The great promise of the gospel even goes beyond that. In Ezekiel 36, he says, I will put my spirit within you. (laughs) The great promise of the gospel is that God himself, by his spirit, lives in and with all of his adopted children. Super clear. Romans 8 says, if anyone does not have the Spirit, he's not God's. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, you're a temple of the Holy Spirit. He lives in you. That's that's part of who you are. That's your identity. You're a, a home, a temple, a dwelling place for God, the Spirit. So belonging to God means having that Spirit. Being an adopted son means that the Spirit of Jesus Christ dwells in you. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. read it earlier. He gives us his spirit. One of the ways that the Bible refers to the Holy Spirit is that he is the spirit of adoption. He dwells in us. And what does he do, Galatians says? He cries out, Abba, Father. One of the roles of the spirit in our life is to remind us that God is our dad and that we are his. Because we're so prone to forget it. We're so prone to identify ourselves in other ways. The Spirit says, no, you are fundamentally a child of God. Abba, Father. Who calls God Abba in the Bible? Jesus does. Jesus calls him Abba. And the Spirit, when he indwells us, welcomes us into that relationship. Says The language that Jesus uses for God that's your language now. The relationship that Jesus sustains with the Father, that's your relationship now. You are welcomed into his sonship. And when, when the Apostle Paul says here, we are sealed by the Spirit, what he's telling us is that the seal of God himself, the seal of God himself is upon us. So what, what does this mean? What does this mean in olden days? 
That's a, that's a specific historical point, an era in history. Maybe you learned about it in college, the olden days. In the olden days, kings would wear rings, and kings would dip their rings in wax and use that wax to create a seal, which they'd place upon documents, right? Our diplomas have seals on them. Your birth certificate has a seal on it. Kings would use it, and by, with that seal, what would they be indicating on whatever they stamped it on? This is authentic, and this carries my authority. This is authentic. It's mine. It belongs to me. It comes from my desk, from me, and it has my, it carries my authority. When God gives us the Holy Spirit, he gives us the Holy Spirit for many reasons. The Holy Spirit indwells us in order to empower us to carry out the ministry he's given us to do. The Holy Spirit indwells us in order to bring forth fruit. The Holy Spirit indwells us to give us gifts. The Holy Spirit does many things in us and through us. But what Paul is talking about here is one aspect of what the Holy Spirit does for you and for me. He reminds you, he tells you, he marks you, he seals you as authentic child of God. And he says, the authority, the authority with which you are declared his son is the authority of God himself. No one can break that seal. No one can tell you otherwise. So, new hope. Who are you if you are in Christ? Oh, and by the way, he also says this spirit, he's not only a seal, he says he's a guarantee of the inheritance that you haven't obtained yet. You see what that means? A guarantee, a down payment. God is giving you the spirit saying, look, if I'm giving you myself, if I'm giving you the spirit, this is a guarantee that I will give you everything that I've promised you. Look, you and I, we're so used to people overselling and underdelivering, aren't we? People make us promises and they don't deliver. But Delimar and I, are, are, my wife and I are looking for a home right now. We're reading all these listings. We're looking at all these pictures online. Everything looks beautiful. Everything sounds beautiful. And then we go to visit one of these homes. Guess what? It's not beautiful. <laughs> we're consistently disappointed by the places we see. Maybe once we saw a place and we're like, oh, this actually looks like the pictures. Or it actually looks like what they describe it as. Never have we seen one where we're like, whoa, blown away. I mean, they said nice in the listing, but this is awesome. We've never been like, overwhelmed by how much nicer the home is than the listing says. It's always the opposite. To the point where we read certain words and we interpret them a certain way, right? I'm reading a listing and I'm like, you know, this house is, uh, it's charming. Charming means old and run down, I think. <laughs> or when it says like, oh, it's a cozy place. You know, cozy means really small, I think. So when God comes to us and says, look, I have an inheritance for you. Here's the down payment I promise to deliver. We're like, yeah, sounds good. Okay. When God himself, when Jesus himself says, look, my father has many mansions and he's preparing, I'm going back to prepare a room for you. That's a metaphor for what this inheritance is. I'm preparing a room for you in my father's house. We hear that and we're like, okay, we'll see. I'm sure it'll be charming. I'm, I'm sure it'll be a cozy place. God does not oversell, and he never underdelivers. He always, every promise of God's, he says, is yes and amen in Christ. So because of who you are as a child of God, you know that the inheritance will blow you away. And so we're meant to live here on this earth with a hopeful expectancy of that and also a security and a comfort, knowing that I am the child of God. The inheritance is locked up. I know I'm going to get that. I also know that God's present care over me and love for me and acceptance of me. 
is 100% secure. That's who you are in Christ. And as we come to take communion in, in just a few minutes, let's see it as a reminder that you are welcomed into the family. That you and I, if we are in Christ, can come to this table because we are welcomed into the dining room. We are welcomed around God's table and he will nourish us and he will provide for us and he has much more for us than this. I want to invite you to pray with me. Father, we pray that you would simply give us faith to believe your promises. Give us faith to believe the beauty of what you tell us. Because we confess that on the one hand, we're prone to be suspicious. On the other hand, we're prone to be so dull and and, and unmoved. We pray that the Spirit who has sealed us, you Holy Spirit who has sealed us, who dwells within us, that you would fill us with an open-hearted, wide-eyed faith, belief in everything that the Father tells us and everything that the Father has accomplished for us. Lord, we we want to live as your children with our big brother, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Spirit who dwells in us. Give us the power to do that. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.